This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Monday, March 14th. I'm Matt Hoish. And I'm Julia Caulfield. In today's headlines, Paul Rood to step down as Telluride Public Works Director. BOCC largely against businesses owning deed-restricted properties. Capital Conversation provides a mid-session update. And a mountain weather forecast. But first... KOTO's iconic annual events such as street dance, lip sync, ski swap, and our Halloween party bring the community together in a spirit of fellowship and camaraderie. Show your support for the radio station that keeps Telluride funky and fun. Go to KOTO.org to donate. And thank you. Paul Rood recently did the unexpected. I surprised myself, my wife, and my employer when I submitted my letter of retirement two weeks ago. Rood is the director of public works for the town of Telluride, a position that's capped off over three decades of work with the town. Rood says he'd been thinking about a change for a while, but that day, two weeks ago, he says he spontaneously made the choice. I didn't know that morning that that was the day, and... Within two hours, uh, I had made up my mind and even uh, put together the letter. As for why he's stepping down, Rude says he's really fortunate at this point in his life. I'm happy. My kids are both young adults now. Uh, my wife, Stacy, is as happy as she's ever been. And it just seemed like it was a good time to, to make the move. Rude's Telluride story is like a lot of people's. He didn't realize he was moving to town when he came to the Box Canyon. Pulled into the valley two weeks after my 21st birthday, and 38 years later, I'm still here. He started working with the town in 1987 and began his journey with public works in 89. Some of those early days, he explains, were really fun. Back then, in the summer, every other Friday, we'd wash Main Street with a fire hose. And uh, it sounds a little funny now, but that's how we kept the street clean. There was also a lot of time plowing snow and operating equipment on Main Street at night. You know, those were really good days as well. Some of his proudest accomplishments with the town include working on the Historic Museum Restoration, a seven-year project. Rude was project manager for the last three of those years. He's also proud of helping develop the Pandora Water Treatment Plant, which supplies a significant amount of Telluride's water. Uh, we started the actual construction of the raw water line, so the the pipeline that comes from Bridal Veil Falls down to the treatment plant in 2011. Um, and we did that pipeline construction at night so that we wouldn't impact the Jeep community. And that was a long summer, an incredible undertaking. In 2012, Rood was promoted to Public Works Director. A few years later, the plant opened. And when we cut the ribbon on Pandora Water Treatment Plant, the saying we were using was, we think we've taken care of Telluride's water needs for the next 50 years. And you never know with climate change what's going to happen, but I still think we've uh, set the town up really well as far as our uh, drinking water going into the future. Whoever succeeds Rude as Public Works Director will have big projects of their own. One of the biggest looming is an upgrade to the wastewater treatment plant shared by the towns of Telluride and Mountain Village. Rude has been a part of the team working on a retrofit needed to comply with new regulations. I don't want to shock anybody or have anybody fall off their chair, but the engineer's estimate of probable cost right now is anywhere from the mid-50 to the mid-60 million dollar range. So identifying funding streams for 
those expenses are going to be the next really big challenge, not only for the next public work director, uh, but for the town of Telluride and the town of Mountain Village uh, in its entirety. It's going to be a very expensive project. But as to how Root is feeling about handing off that work as he leaves? I'm feeling very well. A couple of years ago, I would have answered that question differently. But the concept that we've put together, we even have like 3D renderings of where the new equipment can go in the existing building. So I'm feeling confident and I'm, I feel like the work we've done to date will set up uh, both towns and the next public works director for success. Over the years, Root has also served the community in other ways, including two terms on the Telluride Fire Protection District Board and the Telluride School District Board of Education. As far as what's next for him, Root says he has no idea. I'm hoping it's something smaller and easier, and I look forward to, you know, doing something for the next few years and then to slip quietly into retirement and uh, have some fun here at the end of my life. Root thinks there's a good chance he'll stay in Telluride, but adds, if the right opportunity pops up, he's not afraid to go somewhere else to follow it. Paul Root aims to stay with the town as public works director until they find his successor, but again adds, if the perfect opportunity comes up in the near future, he won't hesitate to go for it. Can businesses purchase deed-restricted housing in San Miguel County to house their employees? That's a question the Board of County Commissioners considered last week at a work session on affordable housing. County Planning Director Case Simonson laid out several points for the BOCC to consider in their discussion. First, are they going to displace um, uh, existing employees, say, if we allow businesses to purchase? Also, is it an existing business, existing employees? Are they expanding and adding new? Is it a new business? Um, businesses might have a financial capacity that allows them to basically outbid, you know, individuals who might be uh, purchasing. Ultimately, Simonson notes the goal is to increase the overall supply of employee housing without impacting people who are seeking a spot to live. If the property is already deed restricted, whether it's vacant or built on, that's just shifting. Um, it's not increasing our supply. There are also worries about changes to the character of neighborhoods because, Simonson explains, local deed restrictions require ownership rather than rental for the most part. There's a real concern within um, you know, our deed restricted developments, uh, PUDs, that uh, if it becomes uh, rentals to employees, that there might be a shift in the character of the neighborhood. It's not to say that you know renters are bad and some of these renters may stay very long term, but uh, there is that concern. Commissioner Lance Waring is against allowing businesses to purchase local deed restricted housing. There should not be the opportunity for businesses to own residentially zoned deed restricted housing. Commissioner Hillary Cooper broadly agrees with Waring, but adds she would be okay with businesses purchasing deed restricted lots that don't already have housing on them and building them or purchasing market rate housing and deed restricting it. I'm okay with businesses owning deed restricted uh, properties that are deed restricted, but not purchasing existing. So not removing stock. I need to see businesses adding to our deed restriction stock. Commissioners Waring and Chris Holstrom are okay with that logic to increase the local housing stock but don't want to make it a sweeping policy. Rather, they want to reserve it for case-by-case exceptions. Here's Holstrom. So if they're adding to it, 
we're, we're generally in support of it, but we want to tread carefully and not make it necessarily a policy that's like, yeah, go for it. The BOCC also briefly discussed other ideas to expand local housing at last week's work session. Some ideas include incentivizing the use of favorable local zoning, exploring the acquisition of properties suitable for housing, amending some local zoning to expand allowable housing, and finding ways to incentivize owners to get vacant properties occupied. Colorado's legislative session is officially halfway over, but there's still much to do. This week on Capital Conversation, KOTO State House reporter Scott Franz shares what lawmakers have already achieved and what's to come. Hey, Scott, thanks for taking a couple minutes to chat with me. Hey, my pleasure, Julia. So we are about halfway through the 2022 legislative session. So I kind of wanted to do more of a overarching check-in on on how the session has been going so far. So, you know, starting with that big question of, you know, what does it feel like at the Capitol with us being halfway through uh, this legislative session? I think, uh, yeah, time time moves in funny ways here. You know, it, it, we're uh, on paper, we're halfway through, but it feels like in terms of the the work that still needs to get done, it, it doesn't feel like they're quite there yet. The governor has signed, I believe, over just over 30 bills, but, you know, there are still hundreds more that, that are moving through. And um, I think it's going to really ramp up um, here in the next couple of weeks once they finish the budget. Uh, that's a lot of bills that cost a significant amount of money are kind of in a holding pattern until that happens. And then um, everything kind of gets unleashed in the same week, and then you know we start passing bills um, much more rapidly than anything we saw in the first half of the session. It's also interesting because we're still seeing major pieces of legislation um, being introduced for the first time. Even today, there's a, a press conference um, where Democrats are going to unveil um, what they are promoting as a election security bill. We've done a lot of reporting on security measures for county clerks and kind of the election security in the sense of, you know, the facing threats. But this one actually um, appears to be looking at security within uh, you know, how elections are, are handled. So, you know, this is something that is emerging as a um, second half of session debate on, you know, some Democratic lawmakers now. Um and yeah, I mean, it's it's exciting to be halfway through the legislative session, but it's also, you know, it, it, like I said earlier, it feels like there's still a whole lot of work left to be done. As you just said, um, a lot of work still to come. But what are some of, from your perspective, some of the highlights or the, the bigger accomplishments that lawmakers have already done so far this session? I have enjoyed kind of covering some bills that, that I would consider to be some of the most potentially um, impactful. You know, there, there are so many things lawmakers are working on this year, and it, it definitely feels like they've started to move beyond, um, you know, the impacts of the pandemic. So much of the previous legislative sessions have been focused on, um, you know, almost on triage in a way. What are we going to cut? How are we going to you know, fix our budget? what money are we going to move around? But now they're, you know, they're starting to fund things that, you know, people have been kind of asking for, for years, you know, for example, um, a, a proposal to 
uh, give um, uh, children who grow up in foster care in Colorado uh, free college tuition at public universities, um, expected to make it to the governor's desk. You know, they're now looking at behavioral health funding. You know, the housing bills are starting to um, advance and, and get introduced. And it's also been interesting to see a lot of these things that lawmakers from both parties are, are working together on. You know, that was the example of this bill to ensure that during pandemics or future public health emergencies that, you know, people in the hospital, you know, do have in-person access to someone. That was something that you know, affected um, people and, you know, no matter their political affiliation and, you know, while it was a Republican-led bill, um, Democrats ended up you know, advancing it alongside them. So it's been interesting to see, you know, some of these proposals that really do have the potential to change people's lives, you know, get through in a session. Now, that's not to say there are some big, um, you know, battles to be fought. I'm thinking of this, you know, abortion bill that's still um, moving through by Democrats aiming to you know, protect Colorado's unrestricted access to abortions. And that is generating a lot of political debate, Um they actually debated for 20, 24 hours on the House floor, and it's got several votes to go. So, yeah, those are kind of, I guess, the, the highlights I've seen so far. Well, it's definitely been an interesting legislative session so far. And as you mentioned, it's probably going to get even more exciting in the second half. So we will definitely um, keep tuning in and, and keep chatting with you about all the things that are going on. And Scott, thanks so much for taking a couple minutes to chat with me. Hey, my pleasure, Julia. Thank you. That was State House reporter Scott Franz reporting from Denver. March 14th, Pi Day a perfect time to eat pie and celebrate all things 3.14. But local Paul Herding has been celebrating pie for a while now. Just before the pandemic hit and sent the world into a spiral, Herding successfully recited 16,106 digits of pie and claimed the number one ranking for most digits of pie memorized in the United States. KOTO News spoke with Herding to learn more about the tricks of memorization and his U.S. record. This story was originally broadcast in March 2020. 3.14159265358979323846264338327950 I'm Paul Herding. I'm a, a teacher and a tutor and and I've always been kind of against memorization as a way of learning things. You know, I, I don't think uh, regurgitating things necessarily means you you truly understand. And so as a teacher, I was always um, adamant that my students don't memorize, but they go for the deeper concepts. And so I've, I've always looked at people who can, you know, recite things as mem- from memory as, you know, is this a worthwhile pursuit? I'm not necessarily sure. 8841971693993751. Last year, I was reading an article about a bakery near Yale, and they would give away free pies if you could recite 314 digits of pie. And I thought it was absolutely ridiculous that someone would memorize 314 digits of pie, you know, just to get a free pie. So the irony does not escape me that, you know, <laughs> I was questioning uh, why people would do this. And here I am a year later, yeah, with 16,000. 058 The previous United States record was 15,314, but the world record is far, far above that. It's 70,030. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah, I'm only about a quarter of the way to that one. I don't, I don't know if 
if I have the capacity for that one. 23078 1640628620899 8628034 8253421170679. It was it was a snow day last year and I ended up at home with no power and uh and nothing to do so i i i was just like oh you know we'll we'll see we'll we'll go for we'll go for 100 digits and then we'll see how long that takes and i think within you know the first 24 hours i had about 400 digits down 8216508653286470938446095 the more time i've spent memorizing the more my 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 process has evolved for me I have associations that nobody else will have, and that's the same for you and the same for everybody else. You know, we all have unique experiences, so tapping into our natural connections is is an easier way than memorizing things that are foreign. So I think the overall theme of, of how my memory has evolved is like really making it into a story that I can relate to or that I can envision um, as opposed to just like cramming digits up there. You know, there are certain ones where I had 100 characters to start and like 50 was Luke Skywalker and 06 was Steve Jobs. So certain things where you think of like, like over there, there's Luke Skywalker holding an apple and it's like, oh, well, that's 5006. 0193 I still believe strongly as a way of learning, the conceptual understanding is the way to go. You know, I think what I've learned is that the memory is a lot more powerful than people might give it credit for. I realize how bizarre it, it seems to sit there and watch someone just regurgitate numbers, but, um, you know, give it a try. You could you could get a hundred digits if you wanted. That would be it's kinda like a fun challenge. Four four two eight eight one zero nine seven five six six five nine three three four four six one two eight four seven five six four eight two three three seven eight six seven eight three one six five two seven one two zero one nine zero nine one four five six four eight five six six nine two three four six zero three four eight six one zero four five four three two six six four eight two one three three nine three six zero seven two six zero two four nine one four one two seven three seven two four five eight seven zero zero six six zero six three one not everything cuts across generations Maybe TikTok's too new. Maybe The Breakfast Club is too old. It can be hard to find something for everyone, young and old, to enjoy. But, let's face it, trivia is timeless. This Friday, the Wilkinson Public Library is hosting a family trivia night for kids, teens, parents, and grandparents to come together to compete. And yes, there will be pizza. The Family Trivia Night will be Friday, March 18th at the Wilkinson Public Library from 6 to 7 p.m. Registration is required. More information is available at TellYourRideLibrary.org. 
The Telluride Institute's Talking Gourd Poetry Program has announced their annual Fisher Prize National Poetry Contest. The 25th Annual Prize for Poetry is open to all poets in the U.S. and overseas citizens. This year, the contest has $3,000 worth of prize money. The Fisher Prize was established in 1997 in honor of Mark Fisher, a San Miguel County poet and lawyer. It also honors his wife, Elaine Fisher, who passed away in 2016. This year, the first place prize is $2,250 for the Fisher Prize and $700 for the Cantor Prize. The Cantor Award is given to the top submission by a Colorado poet or written about Colorado. The contest is open to any style of poetry. It does not need to be written specifically for the contest. Anna Scotty, a former Fisher Prize winner, will judge the Fisher Contest. San Miguel County poet Art Goodtimes will judge the Cantor Prize. The deadline to enter poetry in the contest is August 31st. For more information about submission guidelines, go to TellurideInstitute.org. Aspen City Council held a special meeting on Monday. On the agenda is an attempt by the city to reinstate its pause on new permits for residential development after a judge declared the pause invalid. Caroline Yanis has more. The Aspen Board of Realtors sued the city in January after it passed its emergency ordinance that halted new permits. The district court judge wrote in her opinion that while the city did not give proper notice of the ordinance, it was within the city's powers to declare what an emergency is. Chris Bryan is the attorney for the Aspen Board of Realtors. He says the board is pleased with the judge's finding that the city did violate the open meetings law. And now they're having to go back and try to do it right the second time. We still believe that this isn't an emergency and that the city of Aspen, they're misusing their emergency powers. The city attorney for Aspen has not responded to a request for comment. Caroline Yanez, Aspen Public Radio News. Elections for Colorado's 3rd Congressional District will be here before you know it. In anticipation of the hotly contested race, KVNF Radio talked with the candidates running to represent the Western Slope in Congress. Here's Kate Redmond speaking with Democrat Colin Wilhelm. Colin Wilhelm, Glenwood Springs resident, attorney, husband, and soon-to-be father, is seeking to unseat Lauren Boebert. I asked him what he thinks is the number one issue facing our district. The thing that we hear most about when I'm on the road talking to people is housing. The ability to either buy a home or build a home or, most importantly, also renting for for the workforce. Short-term rentals taking up a lot of the rental space to lack of inventory. We're building a half a million homes less a year than we were in 2008. That relates to the issue of lack of economic diversity in our towns. From being a ski town to a coal town to an oil town, it creates a a housing crisis for those workers there who aren't making as much money as some of the people who are moving into the country had. What's a specific piece of legislation that you would like to sponsor in Congress? There's a lot that I want to do, from uh, reopening the Colorado River Water Compact to increasing budgets for our schools around the country and empowering teachers to access to mental health care, which is hugely important to me. Two different pieces of legislation that I want to pass immediately. One is a bill that will create some form of understanding with our members of Congress. 
And that is having all members of Congress, every member of the cabinet, every high-level bureaucracy member, including the president and vice president, putting all their money, all their assets into a blind trust. I think that will lead to a lot of accountability and maybe let some people think that there's a little bit less corruption in our government. The other one that's super important to me would be creating real oversight for addiction treatment. As a recovering alcoholic, I know that where I went to rehab was a phenomenal place and they cared about us. Some places around the country aren't like that. And I'd like to see some form of oversight to make sure that every place is as good as the one that I went to. When you spoke about the Colorado River Compact, it brings me to my next question, which is please tell us your experience with water conservation, water delivery, and protecting watersheds. I've been learning as much as I can talking to water lawyers. I myself am not a water attorney, but I've been talking to different conservation groups, to different river authorities, and trying to determine the best possible resolution for our water shortage. One thing that we need to do is increase demand management practices so that way people are using their proper allocation of water or less than their proper allocation of water. And when they do that, under my plan, they would be getting a tax rebate for using less water. And that can also prevent water speculation because we can prevent corporations from getting that tax rebate by building it into a tax code. So then there's no incentive for corporations to speculate in Colorado's water. Lauren Boebert has the largest campaign budget of any of the candidates. I asked Wilhelm what he thought of our current representative. I read somewhere that she has a 7% in-district approval rating. And so that tells me that some people don't think she's doing very good. She's gotten one bill signed by the president, and that bill was, I believe, awarding a medal to a posthumous member of the military and had a, almost 200 co-signers on it. So that, that's, if that's what you're hanging your hat on, that's not great. She not only has she not brought a dollar of money into the state into the district, she's actively turned down earmarks and other forms of direct and, and grant monies that could come to our district. Colin Wilhelm told me he is ramping up fundraising efforts now and has gained the endorsement of Arnold and Marguerite Salazar. Arnold Salazar is the former chairman of the board at Adams State University, a trustee of the Trust for Public Land, and the CEO of Colorado Health Partnerships. Marguerite Salazar has been the Region 8 Regional Director for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the Colorado Insurance Commissioner, and the Executive Director of the Colorado Department of Regulatory Agencies. For KVNF, I'm Kate Redmond. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for mostly clear skies tonight with a low around 20 degrees. Tuesday should be sunny during the day and partly cloudy at night with a high near 50 degrees and a low around 30. Wednesday, snow showers are likely in the afternoon with mostly cloudy skies and a high in the mid-40s. Wednesday night calls for mostly cloudy skies with a chance of snow showers and a low around 20 degrees. This has been the news for Monday, March 14th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206. We would like to thank everyone who has donated to KOTO during our winter fun drive. A huge thank you to Jonathan Abram, Debbie Adams, Amber Alonzo, George Alley, Stephanie Anagnostu and Bernard Hatcher, Ryan and Jill Anderson, Susan Anderson, David Averill, Mike Balzer, Ashley Bowling, Donna Caruso, Luigi Chirani. 
Suzanne Chevins and Don Wontrobski, Dan and Lori Collins, Eileen Fish, Brad Jensen, Brant Garber, Our Good Times, Abby Hellman, Kristen Hughes, Richard and Deborah Eidler, Trisha Intiman, Jackie Kenefick, Gretchen Colts, Dan Lester, Hannah Max, Brittany Miller, Matthew Pallone, Philip Peschini, Natalie Price, Gary and Kim Richard, Heidi Sarazen, Sarah Spencer, Matt Somer, Dick Unruh, Chris Wilson, Delaney Young, and Mary Woodland. Thank you all so much.